Hey guys, welcome back to Keeping It Simple. This is Luis Sanchez. I'm here with my co-host. Hey, I'm Scott Callantine. Welcome to the episode. Let's get started. Hey, Ralph, uh, welcome to the show today. Our podcast, Keeping It Simple, is about microexpressions of the church and leadership development. And what we want to do today is introduce you to our listeners and to share the story of Hope Chapel. So to kick us off, so, you know, for people that may not know or be familiar with uh, you and your story, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you're up to these days, and how your life intersects? Uh, with um, uh, micro expressions of the church. Okay, that's a that's a long one. I, I think let's do this a little bit chronologically. I, I was, uh, you know, found the Lord when I was five years old. When my dad started listening to Jay Vernon McGee on the radio, and and uh, he wanted to go forward and you know do the altar call thing, and he took me to a Youth for Christ rally. They they did these big deals in those days, a couple thousand people. And I still remember the guy who talked. I was a little kid, but I remember him. And and I looked him up on the internet and all that. My dad, you know, we go to the little room where you're going to go pray. And they thought he was a Christian taking his little boy to accept the Lord. And I found Jesus. And I became a class A hypocrite pretty much Mm -hmm. through my school years uh, because I felt called to the ministry and didn't like the idea. Very young, six years old, um, my dad starts talking about moving to this place called Los Angeles. I lived, we lived in Portland, Oregon in the rain. And I'm in the first grade and I don't want to leave my friends. I don't like the idea of him going to this Bible college. I hate the idea. And one day he starts going on about, I wish one of my boys would become a pastor one day. And I'm thinking it'll be him. It'll never be me. And somehow that flash of anger uh, kind of clued me in that God was trying to talk to me through this. And I didn't like it. And I just, so I, you know, I go to church and get saved every Sunday night. And then <laughs> by Monday morning, somebody tells a dirty joke at school. I'm passing it on. Uh, had a filthy mouth. And then every Sunday night again, I'd come back to Jesus. And, um, and I, so I, I love the Lord. Didn't understand grace. I was really confused. Finally, we got a pastor that started taking us through Galatians and Ephesians. And that, that really turned me around. And once I turned around... I submitted to Jesus. So I went to a Bible college and for four years in that Bible college, I was a youth pastor in a small church in the San Fernando Valley, California. And um, the church had, had shrunken from about 150 people to 25 when this assistant pastor from our church in Portland became the pastor. And um, I had driven one of his cars to LA as a free ride to get to college and so I connected with him. And actually, he was he was after my roommate. My roommate was a real gregarious, outgoing, and I'm kind of an introvert who you get me in front of a microphone, I can talk, but get me alone, I don't know what to say. And so he wanted Tom, and he was trying to recruit Tom to come, and Tom said no. And so I went and asked him, would it be okay if I came and, and helped out in your church? But this man, he had to drive like 45 miles each way twice on Sunday And so I went and recruited a bunch of friends just to make it worth it to him because I felt I wasn't worth it. And so I I worked with him for seven years, and uh, the last three they paid me. I graduated, and I was pretty much a failure as a youth pastor in in that I could never get a group to grow beyond about 30. I could throw a party, and 300 people would show up. Did that often. Get 
you know, start recruiting kids to camp, I could take a hundred, but I could never get anything. So I thought if I plant a church, it's going to be a very small church. And so I was 25 years old and uh, I had, I'd had this very unique experience and, and I, I was driving these kids while I was still in college, driving a bunch of kids down Manhattan Beach Boulevard in Southern California. And I'm going, oh, I like this town. You know, I'd grown up going to the beach and love beach towns. And, and, and I'm going, I wonder if our denomination has a church here because I want to be its pastor. And, mm-hmm. and right as I'm thinking this, I look up and, and there it is. It was a little pink building. Uh, the, the street was a two-lane highway. They later on made it into four lanes. And um, instantly I feel guilt. It's like I'm coveting that guy's job. And so that stuck on me. And I started praying for the man, whoever was the pastor, praying for the church, um, got very involved in youth work, never met any kids from that church when I go to the camps. So I started praying, God, send young people at church. God, meet their financial needs. God, make the church grow. God, make the church bless the community. I didn't realize I was praying for me at the time. And so a um, number of years later, like six years later, the door opened for me to go there and to become the pastor of, of that congregation. And there's nobody there. We'd had our firstborn son and my wife had quit her job. That was 60% of our income. And, and now we're living on mine and the door opens for the church and, I, and I'm going, nah, I'm not going to do this. And again, I, I, I felt like I heard a, a voice, a, a voice out loud. that said, and as we were making jokes about if I went there, my friend and I, Jim Hayford, were making jokes about, you know, they, they tow banners behind airplanes at, at, at the beach to advertise stuff. We're going to tow banners behind submarines to get to the scuba divers. And, and in the middle of all of our, you know, having fun, I, it's like somebody was right here behind me. And, and I know it wasn't audible because Jim didn't hear it. But it's like I heard it right here. And it, and it just said, go. Kind of like, I, I don't like your stupid jokes. Just do what I'm telling you. Go. So I go home. I told Jim. Uh, if my wife goes for it, we'll do it. And so I go home, she's ironing the kids sitting there trying to shovel carrot puree in his mouth and getting it all over his face. And, and I, and I tell her, you know, the thing in Manhattan beach opened, uh, there's, there's no money. Are you interested? And, and she puts the iron down and goes, let's do it. Just like that. My wife is a gem. Her name is Ruby. So she really is a gem. So uh, we end, we end up down there. And um, we recruited 12 of our friends. Well, not 12, including my wife, I. So we had nine, nine friends. And we got a lady who wasn't a believer. She, she was like a post-Christian person uh, who, who had dropped out to play the piano for us. Uh, the little tiny building held 66 people in the auditorium and had three eight-foot by eight-foot classrooms for children. It was a crazy thing. But just before we went there, um, we heard Chuck Smith, the man who had been my pastor that taught me grace, had also been the president of the college I went to for my last year there. <clears throat> and then they made him what they called a, a district supervisor. And he had put Chuck Smith in the ministry. He'd put a guy named Jack Hayford into the ministry. And he put me into the ministry. And, um, and so two weeks before we launched with our 12 person congregation, we heard, he introduced us to Chuck Smith and Chuck is at that time pastoring 2000 people 
in Costa Mesa, mostly hippies. Uh, they have a building that will hold 350. They've knocked out a wall so people, kids can sit outside on the, on the ground and, and watch what's going on inside. They, um, for space reasons, if you're, if you're wearing jeans, come up and sit on the floor, on the platform, sit on the floor in the aisles um, within months. That was what we were doing. But, but, the, but Chuck said that, that he was trying to, everybody above sixth grade, he was trying to, to reach them by bringing his vocabulary and everything down to where they could understand it. And he was just going chapter by chapter through the Bible. So on Sunday nights, he'd do 10 chapters in two hours. Well, I tried that one time. The next week, it was five chapters. The next week, it was one chapter. But I felt like if I could just teach these people the Bible rather than a topical sermon, because this is what had happened to me. I grew up in a topical sermon church. And then this guy, Nathaniel Van Cleve, became our pastor, and he started teaching through the Bible. My problem in, in, in high school, I mean, I, I was a hypocrite, but I loved the Lord. I'd, I'd go to school, try to tell my friends, hey, this is what I heard yesterday from my pastor. And I, I'd remember two points out of three, and, and pretty soon I just quit trying because I couldn't remember what the guy was saying. When, when Van Cleve became our pastor and just taking us through the scripture, well, I could read the scripture. I could get it. I could, I could pass it on. That became really important to me when I heard Chuck say that's what he did. So here we are. We got the small building, like Chuck has a small building. Uh, we, you know, we had a monstrous pulpit. We got rid of that. Uh, I was still wearing a suit and tie. A bunch of hippies, bikers, topless dancer all show up. That's our congregation three weeks in. Wait, 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 so, wait, but, but a clothed topless dancer at this point. A clothed topless dancer named Kit. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so I just start teaching these people the Bible, and 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 as they're as they're getting it, they're 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 sharing it with their friends. And this, of course, was in the Jesus movement, and a lot of stuff was really the Holy Spirit was doing how you know special special things. It was a revival. So what year? What years was like around what years? Just for context, is, we started in 1971, mm -hmm. and um, and and that thing went on. We we had in my last year as a youth pastor we had experienced the wind of the holy spirit mm. we had, there was one girl she was there was a thing called students for a democratic society and they were trying to raise money for fidel castro they would light a trash can on fire every day in the in the courtyard of the of the school somewhere um they were they were kind of a radical almost communist group and this girl was a member of that, and we led her to the Lord. But then she would never come to church because she had to go work for Castro on Sunday mornings. You know, it was, we couldn't get her. So we we kind of started a thing where, um, and this is what stumbled us into making really making disciples. We already were uh, getting high school kids together for a 6 a.m. prayer meeting on Tuesdays. And, and you'd pray for a half hour, but then you had to be able to say, Here's what God said to me through the scripture this week while I was reading it. So we're outsourcing, you know, Bible study. And so we decided we'll do this on the beach on Saturdays, and we're going to sneak this girl into coming. So I get three young surfers and, and her, and you got to, you know, bring your board, bring your lunch, bring your towel, but bring your Bible. Because at the end of the day, we're going to sit around and we're going to ask you, what did you get from reading the Bible this week? Now, She's really turned on to Jesus, but she's not 
coming to anything at the church at the time. So the first Saturday, she brought her friend Bronza. Within a week, Bronza accepted the Lord because Patrice introduced her to Jesus. As, 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 as we're getting into Patrice's life bit by bit, uh, she's, she turns out to be a gifted apest evangelist. And within a year, she, she brings like 12 more people to the Lord or 13 more people to the Lord. The outfall of that was that in that same year, 40 total came to Jesus because we were making disciples who made disciples. So now fast forward to where we're in the, in the beach town and everybody is running a Bible study on their own. And I mean, it's just crazy what's happening. People walk up to strangers on the street, start telling about Jesus. Uh, they go invade a park someplace. Somebody brings a guitar. They start singing worship music. Somebody comes along. What are you guys up to? And, you know, it, it's a Jesus thing. Are you interested? And, and we, so we're, we grew very, very quickly. And, um, you know, that's kind of how we got going. Then we, we, a year and a half in, uh, we, we planted the first church. And I had this desire to multiply my limited gifts because I always mm -hmm. felt like I'm not going to, you know, attract a big crowd. I'm just me. And, and the best way to, to, limp, to, to leverage myself is to invest in somebody else and for them to start a church. And I had met a guy, I'd read a book by a guy named Jim Montgomery uh, called New Testament Fire in the Philippines, where um, a, a missionary family, uh, they had started a Bible college in, in Manila. And the idea was we graduate people from the Bible college and they plant churches. And then this new missionary shows up. And it kind of works like this. Somebody gets, you know, it's a three-year school. Somebody gets two years through it, and they got to go home because mom got sick. And they didn't graduate. They don't have the pastor's license, all that stuff. And so what happens is the guy starts making disciples. And pretty soon there's a gathering of these disciples, and we would call that a church. But our denomination wouldn't. But this missionary did. And he called the guy a pastor because he was pastoring people, not because he had a piece of paper. Well, it goes a little further because some guy from that gathering uh, has to move back to his home island because of a job transfer or something. And he begins making disciples, and pretty soon there's a church. And this missionary was wise enough to let the Holy Spirit breathe on this thing and let it just, the fire blow and 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 burn out of out of hand they were having with only two missionary families in in the country a, a denomination didn't have much money they had like fifty-five thousand people a year coming to jesus amazing thing so i meet the guy afterwards i i, I read about him in, while i was in college and i kind of had this thing i want to do this and i had uh started reading the book of acts in rebellion against the school that i was in I was, I was reading the book of Acts like five times a week. I'd get through the whole thing. Um, my goal was seven, but I never really made it. But my, my attitude was punk. I, I, was a, I was 19 years old when I did this, and I was just going to show you people that you don't know anything, and I'm smart. And, and so I'm going to figure out how to build the Acts 2 church and, and reproduce it. But as I read Acts over and over, it became confusing because it, it went from big to, to small and diffused. It was everywhere. And 
at first it's like, you know, what, why, what, how, how did they fail? They didn't repl replicate Acts. Then I began to realize Acts 2 was the church in its infancy. You get down the road to, to Acts 19 in Ephesus, and the gospel goes throughout all of Asia. And this is the church in its maturity. And so I put all these things together, and, and I decided that the best way to leverage whatever we're doing is just to plant churches, but didn't know how to do it. And some people in our church, in those days, we had church Sunday morning. That was main church. Sunday night was for evangelism, but we just taught the Bible. And then Wednesday night was a prayer time. And, you know, kind of if you went to all three, you're really spiritual, whatever. And so these people were coming to our church with little kids. And uh, the way that the beach cities in Southern California are, they live south about eight miles. And there's no freeway between where we were and them. So it's all surface streets. They'd come on Sunday morning, but they wouldn't come back on Sunday evening or Wednesday. And so they came to us and said, do you have somebody that could kind of hold an extension of our church on Sunday night for us? And so this guy, Rich Agozino, uh, was he was a navigator guy. He's leading four studies a week. We added a fifth by sending him down there on Sunday night. And he would teach whatever I was teaching, just, just whatever passage of scripture. About two months in, he comes in, he says, um, those guys want to be their own church. We want to call it Branch of Hope. And I'm going, Richard, there's no way you can do it. A, you didn't graduate from a Bible college or a seminary. B, our denomination uh, says that we can't have two of their churches in one city. There's already one in, in the city here in Torrance, California. And C, uh, we don't want you to call it Branch of Hope because we don't we don't want to look like a, we're trying to be a denomination. So don't do anything like that. And so oh, um, get a branch of hope. Okay. You're so we just said no. And so then a, a friend of mine uh, got to me uh, about two months later and, and said, you know, it's easier to get a forgiveness and permission. <laughs> so I went and told Richard, just go for it. And um, then went to the denomination and, and acted all hesitant. I put on a, an act. I, I pretended I go, to the supervisor, um, need to tell you something we did. Well, what'd you do? Well, I, I mean, we're, it's a good thing, we think. Um, we, we violated some of the bylaws of the denomination. Well, what did you do? And I kept hemming and hawing for probably four minutes. And, and finally, I, 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 I told him, I wanted him to beg me. And I told him what we did. I go, we started a, a church. The guy didn't go to seminary. Um, it's in the town where you already got, actually they had two in that town and they only wanted one, uh, which is a kind of crazy thing. They broke their and, own bylaws. Right. And it's, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do the name with your denomination. And the guy gives me this pause and then he goes, you know, my daughter, I said, yeah, he goes, I'm hoping she gets married and gives me grandchildren. I can't tell her who to marry. I can't tell her where to have kids. I can't tell her what to name her kids. You guys just had a baby, and I, I'm good with it. And so that was that. Within one year, those guys had started four more churches. So we kind of went from being level two, where things were kind of comfortable for us, and 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 you know we're growing, but we weren't trying to be the biggest church in the world or anything like that. We kind of jumped to level five. You know, I, in my heart, it was level four. We, we, I wanted control over what mm -hmm. we sent out. Mm. But it, what the Holy Spirit was doing was this guy, Richard, 
he, he's just a bull of a man. He just took off. And um, and it was really good. And those churches are still surviving all these years later from 1972 to whatever it is now. Um, it, it's it's like almost 50 years since we started planting churches and still going forward. So that's the story of the beginning of Hope Chapel. Um, and what we've heard, and I don't know if you've heard the same thing too, Scott, is that Hope Chapel at one point... Um, there was a study done or or someone you know took some sort of survey it was responsible for over cor- correct me if i'm wrong here over 2000 churches now so so talk to us about what was different about how the way that hope chapel went about mission um that led to that explosion that led to that growth and confirm or deny whether it's actually 2000 or more churches Okay, the confirmer and I comes first. What, what happened was um, Ed Stetzer and Warren Bird had done a study looking for level five churches, churches that don't just reproduce, but they reproduce churches that can reproduce and reproduce and reproduce without permission. And that lack of control um, pretty much happened after we moved to Hawaii. We, we controlled things pretty tightly before. And, um, and, and I, what, I, what year did you move to Hawaii? In 1983, when I okay. moved, I was the 30th guy to to go plant a church from the church I planted 12 years in. And uh, in, in those 12 years, pretty much everybody that went out the door spent a lot of time with Ralph on the way out. Somebody else discipled them into Christ. I, I had fingers in the budget, fingers in the planning, all that. Once we got to Hawaii, uh, we realized it has to it has to change. It has to, I stood on the beach the very first day we'd done, we were on the radio already there. And, and we gathered 72 people on a beach illegally. Um, and I stood up and told everybody, and it, and it was this, it was really this conversation that turned us into level five and the thinking that goes behind it. I, I told everybody, we're, we, God called us here to reach 10,000 people in 10 years. That's 1% of the population. It was a million people at the time. And no 10,000 people are coming to hear me talk. And so the deal is I'm going to disciple a bunch of you guys that are sitting here to become pastors. But together, we're not going to get the job done. And so you're going to disciple some guy. I mean, there's one guy down there selling drugs in Waikiki this morning who doesn't know it yet, but he's a pastor called by God and you're going to disciple him to plant a church. And that's how we'll get the job done. That that took us to level five. And so all this happened. We started exploding with churches. We, we I think we did 69 churches in Hawaii during the time that I was there, but we started doing it on other continents. And, you know, churches planted churches. We, we didn't do them all. I think I've been involved with about 80 church plants in my life, directly involved. Then it goes from there to there to there. And so Exponential um, interviewed me, and um, I told them that what I believed at the time, there were about 1,400 uh, churches that came out of the original Hope Chapel in the world, because after I left Hermosa, they went for it. They're in Israel, they're in Africa, they're in, you know, we're mostly in Asia, and uh, we're in Southern Africa. We've done some things, but anyhow, um, so I told them 1,400 churches, and then I started waking up in the morning feeling like you idiot you you exaggerated there's probably a thousand churches at the most 
And I, I, it was really getting to me. This went on for a couple of weeks. And so I went into my Microsoft Outlook, just my contacts, and I got a hold of everybody that I still had an email address for. And I'd sent this fancy little email out asking, you know, when did you remind me when you started? What what is your current name? Because they changed their names. You know, they think that's cool. Um, and I think it's cool too. That uh, what, what churches? <laughs> what churches have you started? Uh, get, can I have their email address? And then I, I expanded it as far as I could take it. And so mm -hmm. it's a sloppy thing when you're in the middle of movement. You don't keep necessarily keep really good records. At least we didn't. We started as hippies, so that wasn't important. <laughs> anyway, I found twenty two hundred and seventeen churches, wow. and and told exponential this. By the time that I got to the deal, or uh, there were five more churches that that I had just, you know, we we learned about. Well, besides that, there were guys who never answered the first survey. All it was a big long word document, and when I sent it out to everybody, I sent it to the guys who never answered, and some of them come back to me. Why didn't you include our churches? We started this many churches, and it's like, well, because you didn't answer your email, you stupid, and. Um, so by the time that 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 really happened, we knew there were about 2,400 churches. Yeah, but nice. we just had the 50th anniversary of the first church. Mm. And a guy tells me, oh, you know, I, I told you before we had about 140 churches in, it's either Madagascar or Mozambique, I can't remember. He goes, there's, there's 200 and some more than that now. So we believe there's over 2,600 wow. wow. churches. And um, so that's that's how I got into that. That go back to that original pink church in California. Yeah, yeah. They wow. go back to that original pink church in California wow. that moved five years into a bowling alley. Twelve years in, a guy named Zach Nazarian became the pastor. He he just he decided it's you know it's for every church to plant churches, and so he just yeah. kept the ball rolling. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing things have happened. That's so awesome to hear, you know, and we want to be a movement like that, that is a reproducing multiplication. It just is a domino effect and, and continues to plant. Uh, when you say, you know, we planted 2,600 churches or 2,600 churches have come out of Hope Chapel, what are the core elements that must be present for a church to be a church? Like when you say 2,600 churches have been planted does that automatically mean, oh, we, you know, everybody bought a building and they have all these parking lots and all that? Or what makes the church a church? Yeah. Talk about irreducible chapel. minimums. Yeah. Like what are the irreducible minimums that you guys set up? So the irreducible minimum to me is a, a little different than is, is being put out by other people. I, I agree with them, but my attitude is this. My friend Brian Sanders will say that two or three people is an aspirational microchurch. So he's looking for a little bit more momentum. I'm going to say two or three people is a church, but that's not how we lived. How we lived when we were planting churches while I was still pastoring was uh, we want 150 people. So we're we we the whole concept of microchurch was just not something we knew anything about. Uh, we, in fact, we would either look at it as an anomaly are a failure in those days. So anomaly is I got a friend that was uh, leading three microchurches downtown Honolulu 
uh, one met 6.30 in the morning on Mondays in a restaurant. Then on Tuesdays, another met in a bar. On Thursdays, back to the same restaurant with a third microchurch. We saw that as an anomaly, and we thought it was wonderful. But what we're doing when we're planting churches, we're trying to send people out with momentum, about 150 people. We didn't care about a building, all, all of that. But but we would always, because it, it started, sometimes you learn from somebody else's experience. Some guy comes up to me on a Sunday morning in Hawaii. We're meeting in a public school at that time. We we started in a park, moved to a park where we actually got a permit, and then we're in a public school. And this person comes up and says, "I, you know, do you have a Hope Chapel in Antarctica? And I go, what? And, and it, we had a thing we called tapes by mail. This is in the days of audio cassettes. And we just give them away free. Anybody who wants to sign up, we'll send you a tape of, every, of the sermon every week. So m- Tuesday morning, somebody is duplicating all these cassettes and mailing them and they're really going around the world and so um so the guy goes yeah you preach every sunday in antarctica and and we have a little church we're at a scientific research station there's eight of us in that church well that kind of started changing my thinking a little bit that you know this is a church but to me the irreducible minimums are are more to do with function than form and so I'm, I'm thinking that you, you need the word of God yeah. being taught in one way. You need community. You need worship, which to me is, is Romans 12 worship. I submit myself to the Lord. And then you need mission. There needs to be something coming out of that. So I'm leading a, a, a micro church, a micro expression of the church, can I say, on Saturdays right now. And we have pretty much everything going on except for there's no mission. And so I'm not really, I wouldn't really say we meet the ecclesial minimum um, just you know, by my own standard. It's, it's a bunch of old folks who are uh, kind of refugees from churches that have let us down. We were friends over the years. And so we get together for two hours on Saturday afternoons and have a, a really wonderful time in the Lord. And we're growing, but we're not doing kind of things that we should do so that if that answers your question but let me let me add something because you asked the question Luis, about how, how we go about this and uh, we we modeled in the earliest part of our life back in 1971 we I, I couldn't find any books on how to plant a church the nearest i could find was robert schuler's book uh, move ahead through possibility thinking and he told the story about how he started what became the Crystal Cathedral. And I had met Schuler, and so I went to a conference of his. He actually mentored me after I, I was so young and so inexperienced. He really put a lot of time into me. It was it was nice. I, I didn't agree with his doctrine, but I, I sure loved the way he invested in us. But we, we looked at Acts, so that was all we had was the book of Acts. And so we kind of built on these three pillars, Acts 2, 41 to 47, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, and Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. So the church is meets in the temple, and then these functions happen in the houses. Um, today, I would like to look at the church in Jerusalem as a house church movement, because as soon as it starts to get to Jericho or these other places, Samaria, they're not coming to the temple on Sunday, Saturdays or whatever. So they're not, they're not getting that part. But we, so we saw the 
the public gathering as the temple in Acts 2, and then the house thing, and, and we kind of decided what works best in a big gathering, what works best in the small gathering, and we, we built off of that. We saw everybody as God's masterpiece, and, and we very quickly determined that that has to do with your life in the world, not your life in the church building. And so that, we wouldn't have used the term, but that set, set us on a missional approach. Now, we did pick up from Schuler that this little phrase, every member a missionary. And so we kind of lived off of that a lot. And then uh, when, when we got to Ephesians 4, we didn't fully understand APEST because this was an era where there was a lot of cessationist teaching going on. People who don't believe spiritual gifts are for today, they don't believe that there are apostles other than the 11. And so I spent the first 15 years of my ministry arguing that there were more apostles than the 11. Barnabas was an apostle, Andronicus and Junius were apostles, and, 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 and we, we, we struggled over that one a lot. So we really weren't functioning. We, I think we we're functioning, because I think every church does, but we weren't identifying APS gifts. But what we did pick out of that scripture was if, if, the, if the leadership gifts in a church are there to equip the saints for ministry, and the purpose of the church is to equip the saints for ministry. So we kind of link together what we're doing on the, on the weekend with what we're doing in the midweek. We called it mini church. Today I'd call it a micro church within a congregation. And we'd, we'd gather for, for food, for, for fellowship, for prayer. But the, the meat of the thing was we'd ask these three questions. What did the Holy Spirit say to you while the guy was talking? Because sometimes the Holy Spirit took you down a rabbit trail. We want to hear that. So we're teaching people to listen to, for God. The second thing is, what are you going to do about it? Now we're teaching people you should obey God. And usually if they say they're going to do something in front of their friends, they probably will do it. And the third question was, how can we help you well, or pray for you? But when we said that, people begin to get involved in each other's lives and we saw their, their giftedness emerge. We begin to recognize, you know, people's, you know, they have a propensity to do, to give or a propensity to be a helper or whatever. And we start seeing the Romans um, 12 gifts, the first Corinthians gifts come alive. And so what our, our pattern was we're making disciples by holding people accountable to what the word of God is, it's yeah. to their hearts. Yeah. Well, if somebody is good at this and the thing starts to grow, we had a pattern where you always have an apprentice. Pretty soon you have two, three apprentices. You take your weakest apprentice and you leave and you go start a new group because people don't like to, you know, don't send somebody out because you sent the weak person out to do the hard job. Take the strongest person and let them leave and, and do the, the, you know, plant. If we saw a person plant three of these micro churches, then we would go have a little conversation with them about, you know, we've seen all this fruitfulness in your life. Uh, would you pray? This is all we ever did. Would you pray about the possibility of launching a, 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 a in those days, we would have called it a real church, uh, a real church from here. So we're thinking you go out with 150 of our people and, and you'll launch from there. And so we would put in, in Hawaii, uh, we, we would just tell them, you can take as many people as will go with you. You could take our name, 
and we'll help you write a budget and we'll fund the first month of it 100%. And on a sliding scale over six months, that'll reduce and then you'll be on your own. And that worked very effectively for us. And, and then they went reproducing from there. And so that was, that was our, our training module, other than that the leaders of these micro churches, we'd get together a couple of times a month, we'd be reading books together. I'm a book freak. And uh, it might be a history book, it might be a Christian leadership book, it might be a secular business book, but we'd always ask the same three questions. What did the Holy Spirit say to you? What are you going to do because of it? And how can we help you or pray with you? And that was our seminary. I, I have a friend who, who went to Fuller and um, moved to Hawaii about the time we did to work in another church, and that church blew up, and he ended up being a mailman. He came to me one year, one day and said, you know, uh, you've made me read far more than I ever read while I was going to seminary. <laughs> uh, he was with us a long time, but, you know, it, it, and by the way, and I'll, I'll quit, I get to preaching, but it would take five to seven years before we would launch somebody as a pastor. Seminary is a lot shorter route than working through our disciple-making model. Yeah. Man, thanks so much for kind of just sharing your experience and what that has been like with Hope Chapel. And our audience can't see you here on Zoom, but you do have a massive amount of books behind you. You are a reader. I'm a reader too. I love it. Continue to be educated and learn and grow. Kind of pivoting a little bit or shifting gears from kind of the past and looking back. As we're here in in 2022, recording this in early 2022, what are you seeing or what are your thoughts regarding the micro expressions that are planting or emerging right now? Are you encouraged? Is something missing? Um, is there something you are seeing that is happening right now? Uh, um, about the time, well, it was the time, 1971, I, I, two weeks in, I had um, gone to Robert Schuller's second pastor's conference that he ran. So think of something that grew to be 8,000 people would come to this deal. And I went there when there was 120 in a small room. That's how come I knew Schuller and, and he began to kind of care for us. He then it would invite me as, as we, it took about three or four years. Once we got the bowling alley and we were, we're four or 500. Well, actually, we went from 400 in a gym to 800 in a week in the bowling alley. And then we started shrinking. And that's and because the Jesus movement had died back. We had um, popped with growth. And so there's 400 strangers in our midst. And we kind of lost our identity. And that's when we kind of invented what we called mini church at the time. And it, and it really began to take hold and church planning exploded. And so Schuler started inviting me back to speak at his conference. I always give my testimony. Well, there was another guy there. And oddly, I'd see him every year when I'd go to this thing. We never, ever spoke. His name was Bill Hybels. And so as we're choosing to multiply and give people away, we're watching this addition thing happen where people are just trying to pack in more numbers and frustrated by it. Because again, the word leverage, I, I, I knew however big Heibel's church was, we were touching way more people every weekend 
than he was. I mean, if you think about it now, 2,600 churches average it out around 100. There's a quarter of a million people going to church. There's there's no mega church in the, in the world that's doing that. And it'll keep going long after I've died. One of the things that church multiplication does is it gives the core leader permission to die or permission to retire because God will keep moving without you. Don't, they don't need me there at the helm. So as I look at the world now with the, the rise of exponential, I look at Todd Wilson as a, a, as a prophet to, to the church. I mean, the things that Todd has brought to us, the fact that 10 years ago, only 4% of churches had ever multiplied, reproduced themselves, and probably half of them were church splits. And now 7% have reproduced themselves, and a lot of them are beginning to be level five multiplication churches. I'm thrilled, and I, I, I believe that this is God's gift to the world, and we're beginning to see the outfall. And, and here's what I'm experiencing. It, it comes back to your question. I, I work a lot with exponential learning communities, and I'm meeting guys coming out of seminary who are going, I'm choosing a career, and I'm going to be a bivocational pastor or freelance pastor, whatever you want to call it, over the prevailing model church where I'm looking for, you know, 400 people to pay my salary. And, you know, usually that means you're, you're not sure you're going to get your salary every time because they're not sure they're going to make budget. But I'm, I'm watching guys that are coming out that are saying, no, I want a job, and uh, and, and, and uh, I, it'll support the ministry, and we're going for micro. And I know that it's a lot easier to multiply at the micro level than it is at the macro level. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just so encouraged by the people I'm meeting, people that are probably listening to you in, in this Simple Church Collective podcast. Um, they're, they're a blessing to me in the sunset years of my life. Man, you were doing this thing before it was popular, before it was sexy, man. And there's a lot of people, those that are listening right now, um, who are probably, like you're saying, exploring, like, what would it look like to go into ministry here? So for, for someone in their mid-20s who's trying to figure out God's call in their life, um, they have a sense that God's calling them to plant a church, but don't know exactly where to begin. What would you say to that kind of person? Again, so let's talk about this at a couple of different levels. One, if, 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 you, if you are in a prevailing model church, try to protect yourself from the leadership because they're not going to like what you're doing. Um, but the, the, the main thing is if, you ha if, you're, if you're fortunate enough to have a career, uh, because I, 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 today, if I was doing it over, I, I would have gone and become an engineer. I, I wanted to be an architect, but I wouldn't have made a good one, but I would have made a good engineer. And then I would start planting as many microchurches as I could, but go start with make a disciple and then make friends with his friends and make some more disciples, teach your disciples to make disciples. And, 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 and once it begins to get some critical mass, which might be eight to 12 people, then begin to identify it as a church. I would. I, I was with a guy yesterday who's in New York City, um, and he there. There are actually there's eight people, and it started with one. And he's been paid by a church before. He now works for a university. Took took secular employment. It's it's more stable. 
Um, he's able, he's in upper Manhattan, wealthy, wealthy neighborhoods, uh, lives in a wife and child, and they live in a one bedroom apartment. New York's expensive. And so their location for their church is their apartment right now. Um, but they're, they're thinking we could never get to 20 in this space. And so at, at 12 or 13, we're going to have to multiply, but that's his vision. He wants to multiply. So here's a, a well-paid professional, well-educated, um, Asian guy, uh, reaching mostly Asian people in New York city and, and right at the gate, they, their, their vision is multiplication. And so it, he's, he started with one person. And he had to uh, see whenever I started a church, we had to make budget and the budget included my salary. And that's a, that's a weight around your neck. And as soon as you take that little monster away, you're free to, to multiply whatever form the church wants to take. And all you have to do is deal with the function of the church and then let the animal look like what it wants to look like when, when it comes into being. Hmm. Thanks, Ralph. That's so good. Yeah, start with what you're where you're at and the co-vocational reality in, in that space. As we begin to kind of wrap up this episode, what would you say, some parting words for our audience, last closing remarks you want to say, whether it's about multiplication or the, the micro-expression of the church, what would you want to say kind of closing out this episode, a last word to our audience? Make disciples who are capable of making disciples who are capable of making disciples we do that we win the world man thanks so much for being on the show ralph how can people stay connected to you and your ministry how can they learn more about what you're doing um yeah uh everything is at ralphmore.net uh there's podcasts there's blogs there's youtube there's books a bunch of stuff just ralphmore.net and by the way there's a contact form and i answer the email we're so grateful for you and the gift that you are and have been to the kingdom um, and to folks, you know, that the Lord has been using for years and years. We, we want to give them that kind of folk, their flowers, you know, on this side of eternity. So thank you. And, and I love just your transparency, <laughs> it's like calling people like just calling it how it is. So I appreciate that. Well, Ralph, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Keeping It Simple. Stay tuned for more episodes coming out soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Keeping It Simple, where we talk about life and mission in ways that are easy to understand. Stay tuned as we release episodes each Wednesday. We'd appreciate it if you would like, review, share, and subscribe our podcast. Thank you for listening. 